Good morning, church family. Today's reading is Matthew 9, 1 through 17. And getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your heart? For which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and went home. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid, and they glorified God, who had given such authority to men. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciple, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician. But those who are sick, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Then the disciple of John came to him, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The day will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunken cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skin bursts, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. Good morning, brothers and sisters. It is really good, again, thrilled to be here with you this morning and be able to continue through the Gospel of Matthew. So if you haven't already, find your place there in Matthew chapter 9. We're continuing on through this great Gospel and encourage you to continue reading along with us. And just want to let you know really quick, one other way to connect in the life of our church is behind the message. We take what we talk about here on Sunday morning and go a little bit deeper on Wednesday night at 6.30. You can send questions in and it's a great time Wednesday night at 6.30. So I encourage you to check that out. Uh, and also really quick this morning, I uh, just want to say a special welcome. Jake and Whitney Beverly, I'm not going to embarrass you all. I, I wasn't sure what service you're going to be at. But I just want to welcome them back with us this morning. If you don't know, they are our missionaries that have been serving in the Czech Republic for the last 18 months in a hard lockdown in Europe. And man, it is good to see you guys. We are glad you're here. Can we just welcome them this morning? We are thrilled that you guys are here. Matthew chapter 9. I want to begin this way. Webster's Dictionary describes the word authority this way. Authority is the power to influence or command thought, opinion, or behavior. Authority is defined this way. It is the right to govern, to rule, to determine, 
Possession of ability to wield force, authority, influence. says this, it is the power to control. Authority is the power to demand obedience from others. Authority. Ultimately, our lives are shaped and submitted to the one we believe has authority in our lives. Now, that was a pretty good word. I want to say that again. Ultimately, your life is shaped and submitted to the one you believe that has ultimate authority in your life. Left to ourselves, we're pretty good at believing we're the ones in ultimate authority. That's not the picture of the Bible at all. Matthew chapter 9, really the whole gospel of Matthew, just to remind you very quick, Matthew is writing primarily to a Jewish audience to remind them, your king is here. Gospel of Matthew, 28 chapters, really has one ultimate drumbeat, and it's this, this Jesus is the promised king. Matthew writes and teaches what Jesus has said, what Jesus does, and he weaves it together through this incredible gospel of Matthew, ultimately to present Jesus as the promised king. Now we come to chapters 8 and 9 of Matthew that really fit together, and Matthew wants us to know this, this promised king, he has all authority over his creation. Chapter 7, the Sermon on the Mount, as we call it, we finished that several weeks ago. That great teaching of the king ends with this question or this tension a little bit and says this, Jesus was teaching them as one who had authority. Not like their scribes. So it's almost like Matthew jumps into chapters 8 and 9 and wants to present and say, who does this Jesus think he is to teach like this with all this authority? Matthew presents a series of miracles through these two chapters in particular to declare that Jesus not only can speak with all authority, he can act with all authority. And we've seen Jesus and we'll see Jesus in these chapters have authority over sickness, has complete authority over all sickness. He has complete authority over all disease. He has complete authority over all global pandemics. Aren't you glad? He has all authority over sin. We're going to see that this morning. He has all authority over disciples. By the way, Jesus gets to define what discipleship is. He has all authority. He has all authority over the demonic realm. And you're going to see in Matthew, Jesus even has authority over death itself. The point, these two chapters we saw the last few weeks, we're going to see this week and next week. Here's your big truth that's going to guide us is this. Jesus has authority over his creation. And ultimately for you and me, our daily lives are shaped by the one we believe has all authority. You, someone else, some other situation, whatever it is, your life is shaped and submitted to the one you believe has all authority. Let's dive in. Chapter 9. We're going to walk through a few verses. We'll finish chapter 9 next week. But he begins verse 1. You can kind of follow along. We're going to stop along the way. I'll give you some big ideas as we go. Big truth. Jesus has all authority over his creation. Let's see what that looks like. Verse 1. And getting into a boat, he, Jesus, crossed over and came to his own city. 
Chapter 8, Jesus has crossed over the Sea of Galilee and he went to the Gentile side of the Sea of Galilee. You can read about that in chapter 8. Now he gets back in the boat and he's going to cross back over to the Jewish side of the Sea of Galilee. And he's going to come to a little town called Capernaum. Little bitty town right there on the north side of the Sea of Galilee that Jesus had basically set up to be his ministry headquarters. It's where so much that we read in the New Testament took place, this little town, his own city, Matthew refers to Capernaum. And when he arrives, verse 2 says, something incredible happens. Now you know it's incredible because Matthew introduces it in verse 2. Look at it really close. He says, and behold. You see the word behold in your Bible, you need to behold. Something cool is about to happen. Behold, some people brought to him, Jesus, a paralytic who was lying on a bed. I'm going to stop right there and lean into the reality that we have four Gospels, and some Gospels give you a sliver of an event, another Gospel gives you another sliver of that event. The Gospel of Mark helps us understand a lot more in detail what's going on here. So Jesus comes back to Capernaum, gets out of the boat, he's walking through his town, and they they bring to him this paralytic. That's all Matthew chooses to tell us. Mark tells us more. You don't have to turn there. I'm just going to read it to you. Mark chapter 2, verse 1 says this. And when he, Jesus, returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. A few days pass, he's at home. You say, wait a minute, I thought Jesus didn't even have a house, birds of the air, don't have a net. Well, likely he stays with Peter. So it's probably Peter's house, staying there, verse 2. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. So maybe this story is beginning to sound a little more familiar. This is where the house is so full of people listening to the word of Jesus that nobody can even get in. They've got a really full Friday night Bible study, so to speak, going on at Peter's house. Mark, the gospel, continues on and says, I love this, verse 3, and they came. I love that, and they came. Who came? Bringing him a paralytic carried by four men. Now the story is becoming a little more familiar for you. The four men are carrying their friend, the paralytic, on a pallet, and they bring him to the house where Jesus is. The house is full. They can't get in. Verse 4, Mark 2 says, And when they could not get near him, Jesus, because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him, and when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic was laying. Now, you got the story? So they go up on the roof. They're convinced they want to get their friend to where Jesus is. They lower him down through the roof to get through the crowd. And Luke adds, they, they place him at the feet of Jesus. Now, I just got to tell you, this is an incredibly convicting and challenging story for us. We don't know all that was going on in these four friends' mind and their heart. Here's what we do know about these four friends. They are going to get their friend to Jesus. That is convicting and challenging. You say, well, Pastor Mike, uh, these guys, are are they coming because they want a physical healing for their paralytic friend they want Jesus to heal him and allow him to be able to walk or are they bringing their friend because they believe Jesus can forgive sin and heal his soul which is it best I can tell I think the answer is yes 
think it's yes. In other words, in that day, and you can read about this throughout the New Testament, in that day, many the, the Jewish understanding was this. They thought every particular sin that was committed led to a particular ailment in the body. That was the mindset. That, that's like the Job mindset when Job's friends came and said, Job, you're messed up because you sin. A particular sin. Go get rid of that particular sin, you'll be fine. They had a, a wrong conception of that. So somewhere, somehow, they're bringing this friend to Jesus, and in their minds it seems as, yes, he needs a healing. He, he's paralyzed, but it seems they didn't separate it from the sin issue in his life. Now here's what we know the whole Bible teaches. Is the reality is this. All particular sin is, does not directly result in sickness. However, all sickness and corruption and death in the world is a result of sin entering the world. We know that. Right. Now put all that together, and here's what I want you to see about this story really quick. It's this. These four friends, and the paralytic himself quite possibly, were determined. If we can just get him to Jesus, Jesus will make him whole. Jesus is going to make him whole. So they bring their friend. They're undeterred. They meet obstacles. They meet challenges. Listen, that's you and me. And we get there and we say, man, the house is full. Well, guess we better go home. Got other stuff to do. Seems like a closed door from the Lord. I said, no, not a closed door. It's just going to reveal where your priorities are. Their priorities were this. We're getting our friend at the feet of Jesus. Nothing's going to stop us. So they do that. They lower him down through the roof of the house. Back to Matthew chapter 9 where we were, verse 2. And I love this. And when Jesus saw their faith. If you write in your Bible, that might be a really good place to underline. Jesus saw their faith. Point is this. Genuine faith is visible. Genuine faith is never just this feeling or this emotion. It will work its way out in action and obedience and priorities in our lives. Jesus saw their faith. Love that. And he said to the paralytic, take heart. Great word of compassion in the original language. That idea really means it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. Jesus gets right to the point. I'll give you a few big ideas as we go along. Here's big idea number one. Jesus forgives sin. <laughs> Jesus forgives sin. And I hope we're never to the place as believers that we read over this and we try to dig down too deep to miss the reality. Here is the God-man, the Son of God, who says, I have the authority over sin. Man's greatest need, man's greatest challenge, mankind's greatest promise or problem, Jesus says, Son, your sins are forgiven. Take heart. The core of the gospel message is that mankind, we, all of us are desperately sinful, but God in his kindness is, kindness is infinitely merciful to us sinners. Aren't you glad this morning? 
The word are forgiven here literally means it refers to a sending away or a driving away of sin. Jesus dismisses the man's sin, the penalty of it, and frees him of the guilt of his sin. He dismisses his sin. How can Jesus say this and do this? You'll see more in a minute. Two reasons. Number one, he's God. And number two, he's going to pay the penalty that allows him to be able to say, your sins are forgiven. He's the sin bearer. Only Jesus can do this. Only Jesus can do this. Second big idea I want you to see. One big idea is this. Jesus forgives sin. Second is forgiveness of sin is mankind's greatest need. Immediately Jesus, even by saying, son, take heart, your sins are forgiven. Does he recognize his physical ailment? Yes, he's going to heal that too. But you see here a prioritization in the heart of Jesus. He recognizes, and it ought to be again a reminder for us. Mankind's greatest need is forgiveness of our sin. That's our greatest dilemma. That's our greatest disease. While the man had serious physical needs of the body, his greatest need was the sin of his soul. And I don't want us to ever lose sight of that as a church. We should never lose sight of that in our outreach, in our going, in our serving. Does Jesus and his followers, do we care about physical needs, hunger, lack of clothing, lack of homes, lack of education, all that? Do we care about that? Absolutely we care about that. But at the same time, watch this, we as the church who have the truth of God's word are the only ones in the world who recognize, yes, we want to help you with your physical need, but you have a much greater eternal need, and that's the need of your soul. We're the only ones who have that message. And if needs are met and sicknesses are healed and all that, it's just superficial. It's good and it's needed and we do that. But if you miss the eternal, we are healing wounds lightly instead of meeting the true need of the souls of men and women. We as a church have started something. I'll give you a quick promo called Serve and Share. As a church, we, we are called to go make disciples. That's our commissioning from Jesus Different ways we can go about that. One of the ways we go about it as a church is called something called Serve and Share. Serve and Share is where we as a church with life groups and individuals go out and we serve alongside the partners in our community like Agape Women's Services or Memorial Park in Johnson City and feed those who are lacking a meal and serve at a, a free clinic in Kingsport and different places like that. Tons of opportunities for you. Those are on your website. You can ask your life group guide about Serve and Share. And as we do that, let me remind you, we are called to serve the physical needs of men and women, our community around us, while prioritizing the sharing and the proclaiming of the gospel message, Jesus saves. And it's important that we understand the balance that's there as a church as we carry out this great commission that Jesus has given us. Jesus Acknowledges the greatest priority here is the forgiveness of sin. Verse 3. Scandalous statement Jesus makes. If I stand before you today and I look out at Ed and I say, Ed, you know what? I have the power to forgive your sin. You're forgiven. And Carol says, well, he needs it. He's a mess. But somebody pick up, better pick up stones and throw them at me and stone them because I do not have the authority or the power to forgive a single sin. 
you sin against me. We can, I can forgive the sin against me relationally, but ultimately all sin is against God. God alone has the authority and the power to wipe away sin from us. The Pharisees know enough Bible, the religious leaders of their day, they knew enough of the character of God to know that. So when Jesus, this rabbi, this teacher in their mind, this radically wrong, distorted teacher in their mind stands up and says, Hey, your sins are forgiven. Man, they got real problems with that. Verse 3, and behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, this man is blaspheming. So you got to do something with Jesus. Jesus doesn't leave you in a place of neutrality to go, well, you know what? He's a good guy. He's a good teacher. No, he just took on attributes of God. Either he is who he says he is, or you have to conclude the same thing the Pharisees do and say, no, he's a blasphemer. He's deceived and distorted. They said, this man blasphemes. Verse 4, but Jesus, knowing their thoughts, it'd be tough to win an argument with Jesus. Yeah. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, again, Matthew attributes deity to Jesus. Don't miss it. Knowing their thoughts. Why? Because he's God. He's the God-man. Says, why do you think evil in your hearts? And don't miss this as you're reading along in Matthew. What they are thinking is they are seeing and understanding. This is huge. Listen, Jesus to be less than who Jesus really is. They don't recognize him as Messiah. They don't recognize him as God. They are believing something about Jesus that is less than who Jesus is. And Jesus calls it evil in the heart. Wow. In other words, what at its very core, what is evil at its very core? Jesus says, it's when you don't rightly understand who God is. You're thinking evil in your heart. And all the evil that flowed out of the lives of the Pharisees and all that they did. You can, we're going to read the rest of it through the Gospel of Matthew. Ultimately taking Christ and nailing him to a cross as the ultimate evil they committed. Bringing about the ultimate good. All that was because they didn't understand who Jesus was. They distorted the person of Christ. Jesus is showing them who he is. He's not merely saying who he is. He's going to show them. Verse 5. So he says to them, you got problems with me saying your sins are forgiven? Well, let's take it a step further. Verse 5. For which is easier? Is it easier to say your sins are forgiven? Because you can't really test that in the moment, right? You can't really test if that's true, if that's the reality. He says, okay, well, which is easier? To say your sins are forgiven or rise and walk? Because you can test that. It's pretty obvious immediately if I say to a paralytic, rise and walk, I'm God, I have the power to do it. He either gets up or he doesn't. Verse 6, Jesus says, but that you may know. One of the realities as you walk through Matthew, the evidence of who Jesus is is so voluminous, so massive, the Pharisees and the people of his day had no excuse. Jesus says, so that you may know that the Son of Man, that's a Messianic title for Jesus himself, has authority, there's that word, 
on earth to forgive sins, he then said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. There's a little bit of tension in that moment. See, if he's not God, that guy's just going to sit there. If he's the fake that the, that the Pharisees think he is, that, that paralytic, he didn't have the power to get up unless Jesus does some kind of magic spell or something. Jesus says, listen, not only do I have the authority to forgive sin, I have the authority to heal. He says to this paralytic, rise and walk, verse 7, and he rose and went home. Before their eyes, there is a voluminous amount of evidence that this man is God in the flesh. Why did he tell him to pick up his bed? Some little, some little tidbits like that, you kind of have to ask questions. Why did he say pick up his bed? Because listen, here's a beautiful thing. A lot of the so-called fake faith healers of our day, it's this invisible chronic back pain. Oh, I back, oh it's gone. This, this guy was a paralytic. His muscles over the years had atrophied. And he said, get up. You pick up your mat. You use your muscles and you carry your own mat and you walk home. In other words, he had a complete, restorative, full healing. Jesus made him completely whole. And the evidence was undeniable. The miracle was complete right there before their very eyes. When the crowd saw it, verse 8, they were afraid. They had a healthy fear. This man's more than a guy from Capernaum. This, This man does things, says things that only God can do. And they glorified God, verse 8, who had given such, here's your word, authority to men. Jesus has all authority over his creation. So Jesus gives us an incredible picture here. I pray you don't miss it, that he has authority over sin. Jesus has all authority to forgive sin. So the, the, the logic and the, the, the narrative here continues in the mind of Matthew. And he writes, and it's almost as if he says, okay, so how far does this forgiveness go? With the Pharisees and the scribes all standing there. They say, okay, who can be forgiven? Matthew, under the inspiration of the Spirit, basically answers the question. He says, I'll give you a great example. I was forgiven. Verse 9. Jesus passed on from there, and he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. He said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. I'll be honest, I wish we had all morning to preach on verse 9. It's an incredible testimony of a transformed life. The question is, who can really be forgiven? Who, who is able to be forgiven? How far does sin go before it's too much? It's enough. Matthew uses himself as an illustration and an example here. The author of this gospel, he's called Levi in other gospels. This is the same fellow. Here he is. He's presenting himself as a tax collector. And remember, in the minds of a Jew, and in the minds of these Pharisees and religious leaders, you, you couldn't get much worse than a tax collector. Tax collectors are always paired with the sinners. Tax collectors and sinners. Because they were Jewish men who had turncoat on their own people. They had aligned themselves with the Roman oppressive government. And they swindled their people out of their tax. And they added a lot on the top and they pocketed it. They hated their people. They had turned on their people. And watch this. They had even rejected the idea that there was a coming Messiah. Because they had put all their eggs in the basket of Rome. Future kingdom, Rome. 
Matthew is one of these tax collectors. By the way, very quick, this is just for you to look up on your own. A, a certain commentator named Edersheim says there were two kinds of tax collectors. One was a really, really bad tax collector. The others were the really, really, really bad tax collectors. And the really, really, really bad ones that everyone despised were the ones that actually had their hands in the business. They were the ones at the tax booth who actually collected the taxes, looked the people in the face, stopped them, and got their hands down in it. That's why it's important that Matthew here notes he's sitting at the tax booth. Meaning. It is highly likely that the perception in Capernaum was there was no worse dude, no more vile, wicked guy than Matthew, the guy who sits at the tax booth every day and betrays us and lies to us and extorts us and takes our money. That was Matthew. Matthew's a wicked dude. Watch this. The difference in Matthew as the story plays out and the religious scribes and Pharisees is Matthew had a deep awareness of his own wickedness. Matthew knew how sinful he was. So how do you know that? I'll keep reading the story. Verse 9, as Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man, Matthew, sitting at the tax booth. I imagine everything in Matthew expecting Jesus to act like one of the Pharisees was that all Matthew was going to get was condemnation. That's all he got from the Jewish people. But the Son of God walks by and looks Matthew in the face. Watch this. While he's sitting in the tax booth. If you think Jesus calls you to clean up your life before repentance and faith, look at Matthew. He's in the tax booth. And Jesus, with eyes of grace and eyes of mercy, looks at Matthew and says, follow me. And there was a lot of background. Matthew had heard Jesus. He had seen Jesus. He had been there for maybe months now watching all of this. And he rises and he walks, and he, or he rises and he follows him. Edersheim, this commentator, says, Matthew says not a word, for his soul was in the speechless surprise of unexpected grace from the Messiah. Couldn't believe it. See, here's what we know about Matthew. Here's your next big idea is this. Repentant sinners die to self and follow Jesus. He died to himself. Died to his tax business. Died to his income. Died to his identity. Died to all that thing that made up the old Matthew. And when Jesus says, rise, come and follow me, he died to self, he left it all behind, and he followed Jesus. That's a mark of a true repentant sinner who has placed faith in Jesus and their life has been transformed. Say, Pastor Mike, to follow Jesus, does it demand we lay down everything and we die to everything in our lives? Maybe or maybe not, but here's the point we see from Matthew. The heart of a truly transformed one by the grace of God is willing to lay down everything. Matthew does. And he's a, pic a picture of transformation. Really quick, what, is, what do we see about it? Luke helps us on this. Luke chapter 16 or I'm sorry Luke chapter 5 verse 27 says this you don't have to look it up he helps us with what's going on here he says after this Jesus went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth and he said to him follow me 
Verse 28. And leaving everything, he, Matthew, arose and followed him. Leaving everything, Luke said. Left behind his identity, his career, his security, his future. Why? Because he knew the call of Jesus. He knew Jesus was better and all that. And he knew the true followers die to self, repent from who he were, and in faith cling to Jesus as the Messiah. And Matthew lives that out. How do we know? Luke continues. Luke 5, 29 says, And Levi made him a feast, a great feast in his house. So it shows you some of the fruit now in Matthew's life. It says, so after Matthew had been transformed, he has this big party in celebration of who Jesus was. Maybe it was a baptism party, we don't know. But he has this feast at his house. And Luke goes on and says, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table with them. Here's a picture I want you to see of Matthew. This wicked sinner hated by all, is now so transformed, Matthew the vile tax collector becomes Matthew the bold evangelist. Here's something convicting and challenging for you and me this morning. It's this, your next big idea. Forgiven sinners reach sinners. Forgiven sinners reach sinners. Matthew goes right back into that company and crowd that he had been associating with. And he says, just like Jesus has transformed my life, I want Jesus to transform your life. He throws this big party his house. Jesus is there. What causes you and I to often lose our evangelistic zeal? A couple things. One is we forget our great forgiveness. If you wake up every morning, you put your head on your pillow every night, and you realize, I'm a wicked, vile sinner who deserves nothing, but the God of all grace has forgiven me, there is compulsion in that to then go take that same message to the sinners around you that God has placed them in your life. We lose our evangelistic zeal when we forget our great forgiveness. We lose our evangelistic zeal when we live in isolation from the sinners around us. There's always this tension among the people of God. And don't forget this. We're called to be distinct from the world, yes, and pursue the holiness of Christ. And at the same time, we are called to engage in the world around us and be salt and light. At the same time, Matthew pictures that. So there's this party going on at Matthew's house, verse 10. Jesus is there. His disciples are there. They're celebrating what Jesus has done in Matthew's life. And guess who's not happy about the party? Verse 10. Back to Matthew. And as Jesus reclined at the table or at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. Imagine the Pharisees walking down the street, they hear the music playing, and there's this party going on, and they look in, and they know whose house it is, it's Matthew, and they know all the vile tax collectors are there, and they look in, and they go, wait a minute, is that Jesus? Right there in the middle of them? Is that his disciples right in the middle of them? Verse 11, and when the Pharisees saw this, they don't go to Jesus, they go to his disciples, and they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Listen to this. Forgiven sinners will lay down their lives to reach other sinners. But self-righteous people will only condemn sinners around. 
Why in the world would you do this, Jesus? Don't you know they're going to make you unclean? If you're going to have a party, Jesus, it ought to be a party for us. (laughs) We're the righteous ones. Jesus says, verse 12, but when he heard it, he said, those who are well, this is just a reality, listen to this statement, those who are well have no need of a physician, those who are sick. Jesus first gives a logical answer, listen, if I'm a physician, am I going to go hang around those that think they're well and don't need a physician? No, if I'm a doctor, I'm going to go where the sick people are, where do you think I would be? Verse 13, he gives a theological answer. He says, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. The word sacrifice here is the idea of observance of merely religious rituals, which they were really good at. He says mercy here is the idea of the very heart of God inclined toward those that don't know him. You exalt your ritual over the very heart of God. And the reason is you don't even know God. (laughs) Even know him. You don't have his heart. Jesus says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. It's one of those tongue-in-cheek statements. Jesus says, I didn't come to call those that think they're righteous. You Pharisees, I'm here for those that are sinners. And they know they are. Matthew ran when the offer of grace and forgiveness was given to him. He knew his lost condition, and he ran to Jesus. The Pharisees were wrapped up in their own self-righteousness. Wow. And final statement, and we're going to close with this, and we're done. Verse 14, some come, disciples of John, and they come to Jesus. And these, these stories don't seem to connect. They do, and I'm going to ask the team. They're going to come on out and just begin to play, and we're going to go into a time of response, but... The disciples of John came to Jesus and they say to Jesus, Jesus, why do we and the Pharisees fast? And your disciples, they don't even fast. In other words, they were saying probably to try to jab at Jesus. The Pharisees had sent them because fasting in that day was like this ultimate religious exercise. The really religious people did that. And they say, all the good stuff you say you do, Jesus, your disciples don't even fast. And Jesus answers it this way. And I'm not going to take time to read through it all. You can read through it yourself. He says, why in the world would you fast in a time of mourning, waiting for the Messiah to come? Because that's what fasting in the Old Testament was. Why would you fast that way now? Hey, your Messiah is here. That's the point. He says, you don't go to a wedding party and fast. No, it's a time of celebration because the bride and the bridegroom are there. In the Old Testament, God was pictured as the bridegroom and his people as the bride. And Jesus says, your bridegroom is here. Here's the catch for us really quick. He says, you're going through all your religious exercises and you've missed God himself. You're doing all these religious things and you don't even know why. You've missed the object of it all. The Messiah, King Jesus, is here. It is possible to go through all the externals and all the disciplines and miss that the object is no less than God himself. Just bow your head for a moment. We're going to sing a song of response in just one second. 
you do, I want to just ask you a couple questions right there in your seat this morning. It's this. Do you know Jesus the King? Or have you missed him? Is it possible to go through all the religious external exercises and miss the fact that the King is here? Have you forgotten the great reality that Jesus alone forgives sin? Have we lost our zeal for those around us to take the message of forgiveness because we've forgotten the greatness of our own forgiveness in Christ? And you recognizing Jesus as the authority in your life? Is he shaping and is your life submitting to him? Jesus is the authority. Lord, we love you. We praise you. We celebrate you now. Help us to respond rightly to your grace in Christ's name. Amen.